This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, the founder of MrDad.com. For many of us who plan and picture having a family, the image that pops to mind is a pretty short-sighted one. Parenting a child. Sounds pretty simple. But starting at around ages 9 to 13 and ending sometime in the early mid-20s, they will have an increasingly abrasive adolescent to contend with, one who is no longer just an amenable child to look after. There's so much to learn on both sides of the relationship that parenting an adolescent often seems like the blind leading the blind. Most of what parents know is limited to what they have known. The adolescent has never grown this way before. Reducing that ignorance can help, and that's exactly what we're going to be trying to do in this part of today's show. Whether you've started a family early or late, it can be really helpful to have some general expectations of the developmental changes that your adolescent's going to be going through, as well as just keeping in mind that parenting is a long-term slog, and adolescence is just the harder half of it. And according to my guest, that harder half is divided into four separate stages. I'm Armin Brott. We'll start jumping into exactly what those four stages are and how you can negotiate them when Positive Parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. This is the story of a very special woman. Just a few knew about her superpowers. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her Mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. This is how we do every day. We be grinding. And if you want to come and test us, if you love them enough to turn off your music and pretend like their music is your music. Ah, this is mommy's jam. Then surely you'll check NHTSA.gov slash the right seat to make sure they're in the right car seat. Let's play it again. Check today at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Act Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad, and my guest for this part of today's show is Carl Pickhart, who's the author of Who Stole My Child? Parenting Through the Four Stages of Adolescence. Carl, welcome back to the show. It's been a couple of years. Yeah, well, it's good to be back with you, Armin. I I, I look forward to it. So how did you happen to divide adolescence into four stages? Well, I was just trying to make some kind of sense about the progression that seems to occur, you know, starting around 9 to 13 and doesn't seem to end up till around, I don't know, 18 to 23. And I was just wondering if there was a way to kind of order some of the observations in such a way that I could kind of stage it out so that I could say to parents, look, this is the kind of, these are the kinds of changes that you could expect during in this case, I said four, roughly four stages of adolescence through early adolescence, which is the separation from childhood and 
mid-adolescence where they're forming a family of friends and late adolescence where they're acting more grown up and and finally the last stage when they're stage four when they're stepping off more on their own and i i i, I believe that the pro a lot of the problems i see that parents have with their adolescence is that they're caught off guard and by surprise and at that point they can are at risk of overreacting sometimes and thinking yeah. with their feelings and so well, I, I was think, trying to give them a way to anticipate some of these things. I think the thing that catches most parents with adolescence off guard is probably the fact that adolescence doesn't necessarily begin in double digits. It it can be you know, it can begin a lot sooner. I think I think as a parent you you like the the young stages and you you know it's it's fun it's enjoyable they're generally problem free for for quite a while and you don't think you're going to get hit with the teen years until the teen years actually start chronologically right 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 yeah i think i a, a lot of times i think sometimes people think well you know it won't adolescence won't start till puberty you know the onset of sexual maturity ha. but in fact uh, that i think is is not always the beginning. It's actually, it begins, adolescence begins earlier and then puberty intensifies what's happening. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I see the, I see the changes generally starting between nine and 13 and it begins, you know, and it's the, for parents and for kids, it begins with loss and it's one loss for the parents and it's two losses for the kids and the, the parents lose their adoring and adorable little child. And that, wonderfully entrancing magical period that they've had and then the, the the kid loses twice because they have to growing up is giving up so they have to give up a lot of beloved childhood things to grow older <clears throat> and there's loss there and stuff they miss and then they have to give up the idealized and wonderful parents who are now more after them and in their way around freedom issues than before so it's well, you know it's a it's it's a hard beginning i think for both Oh, absolutely, yeah. And is this something that has changed, do you think, over the years that adolescence is starting younger, or is it just a, a redefining things? Because it seems like uh, th there are some, I, I guess th there's no other way to put it than biological changes that are going on, even within our lifetimes, in human development, that, that puberty seems to be starting younger and adolescence seems to be lasting longer as you put it it's going right. into the going into the 20s and and right. if you look at the the population of parents or, or kids who are moving back home after college you could extend adolescence another four or five years and it's <laughs> right. what you know what's what's going on there is are, are there actual medical well, I don't call it medical but biological changes that are causing some of this or is it all psychological well, that's interesting, and I'm not I'm not a good person to answer that. I don't know about does you know pe people who, for example, who are studying the incidence of puberty could probably, you know, that might be something that they could actually record. You know, at what point does the the signs of sexual maturity start emerging? Uh, I, I've had people tell me that they you know that they think it's now earlier than that used to be. Uh, what I look for is is more the the separation issues and the early disaffection issues and the the beginning of detachment for independence and the beginning of differentiation for individuality and i think i can't imagine uh, it's hard for me to imagine it getting any younger than it does but 
you know, I, I would say late elementary, certainly by middle school, most kids are, are in the chute. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if some of that is that, that we have higher expectations for kids. I mean, I, I look at my, my 15-year-old daughter's just her homework. I mean, I went through this with my older kids, but there was a, a bit of a gap there. But she's learning things or when she was 12 and 13, learning things in school that I didn't deal with until a couple of years later, at least. And yeah, I we, think... we seem to have accelerated the, the pace of childhood in a way. I mean, just what, what they're yeah. exposed to and what they're expected to know. Yeah, I think that's a really good statement because I think it's all it's all part of the the parent dilemma, I think, you know, you and I came up in mostly in one world, the, the offline world. And we, now we have kids growing up in two worlds and the online world, you know, has, it hasn't, I don't think adolescence has changed, but it has definitely changed the context. I mean, it used to be in the, in the old days, you know, our parents could say to us, you know, Carl, you know, I know you're interested in that. And we'll talk about that when you're a little older in a couple of years. That's gone. <laughs> now yeah. this kid is a click away from anything they want to know. Yeah. And I, I can't help but believe that the access to essentially unlimited worldly information, you know, has not had some kind of accelerating effect on young people. Yeah, unfortunately, their ability to ferret out what is accurate information from what is inaccurate information has not developed along the same speed as their oh, ability that, to find the information. Yeah, and that's one of the things parents have to, I mean, you, you know, you, you don't just ask your kid, how was your, you know, how was, how was your day? You ask, how was your offline day and how was your online day? Because yeah. you've got to be able to converse about both these things. And right. back to what you're saying, you have to, I mean, we, I think we, as parents, we've got to, we, you know, we have three objectives around the online world. One is we want the kid to be competent because that's, you know, as educational and occupational value. And we want the kid to be safe because it's a dangerous world and we need to help the kid take precautions to take care of themselves. And we want the kid to be balanced so that they don't sacrifice um, offline capacities to, to online and, and, you know, online escape. So we're trying yeah. to get, some, we're trying to play for balance on this one too. Well, so how do you parent a child who's in that first stage, that eight, nine, ten-year-old stage where they're beginning to separate. What are, what are we looking for, and, and what do we do to help them and help ourselves? Well, I think one thing is, is to be sensitive to the ambivalence they bring to the process because if they give off, uh, children will give off a, a lot of double messages, you know, you know, treat me older, treat me younger, you know, let me do it, you never do anything for me. And the parents wonder, you know, which way does the kid want it? Well, they're caught between you know, wanting to grow up and not wanting to give up. And so you have to be you have to be sensitive to the awkwardness of that. Also, I think you have to expect that there's going to simply be more disorganization and more distractibility for a while because the old management system that was was okay for managing childhood is no longer sufficient for this much more complicated world. So that more disorganization, more distractibility, are to be expected, and that's why parents, I think, uh, you know, need to help the kid find new strategies for creating order in their world and also practice more 
concentration and attention paying skills, you know, at a time when their, their attention is just honorably distracted in all kinds of directions. Give us an example of what that looks like. It's not exactly like occupational therapy, but it's kind of like that. What it, essentially the parent is saying is, you know, as you enter this, this larger world, you know, it's going to be harder to maintain order. Let me tell you how I maintain order in my world, and the parent shares maybe how they schedule things. And maybe they, they get with the kid and they say, let's talk about, you know, what kinds of order do you need to have tomorrow so that you can keep your world together? What do you need to remember? What do you right. need to put where? What do you need to get done when? <clears throat> and you help, you, you coach the kid. And giving, creating more organization, self-organizational capacity. And Talking with Carl Pickhart, who's the author of Who Stole My Child? And speaking of taking a break, we're going to take one right here. We will be back in a minute and continue talking to Carl. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke anime Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brad. If you're just joining us, talking with Carl Pickard, the author of Who Stole My Child? Parenting Through the Four Stages of Adolescence. Let's jump into the second stage, which was the, the separation from childhood. So that's looking at uh, the way you've characterized it as about ages 9 to 13 or so. Um, and you were talking about the disorganization and distractibility uh, and, and getting, getting them organized. Is there something more that's going on there? Oh yeah, I think at, at this point you're going to get more of a uh, more of a negative attitude because the kid is more dissatisfied. They no longer want to be, you know, treated, you know, and defined as just a little child anymore. But yeah. they don't exactly know how they do want to be treated. So there's 
there's that kind of dissatisfaction, boredom, and restlessness. A lot of times there's the beginning of more active and passive resistance, active resistance in terms of arguing, passive resistance in terms of delay. And then there is there is early beginning, early experimentation, you know, testing to see if, in fact, the old childhood rules still apply to me now that I am older. Do I still have to do chores? Do I still have a bedtime? Do I still have to do homework? I mean, all of a sudden the kid comes back to see if in this new world order these old rules apply. Yeah, well, then it, it's it's all about rights and responsibilities and believing that you should be able to have one without the other. Right, and that's why, I mean, that's why a big part of parenting is always working off the choice-consequence connection because a kid needs to know that freedom is never free. It always always comes with baggage and the baggage of every free choice is some kind of consequence and you know that's why you know with the good ones parents need to point that out and the bad ones the kid needs to experience enough of that so maybe they learn not to do the same thing again wait talk about that again because i think you when people hear about choices and consequences almost always the head goes to a negative thing if you do this then that and and that's that's your punishment but you're talking about Pointing oh, out no, choices it's, and yeah, consequences no, it's much larger the other than way. that. It's simply, you know, for example, you know, you made a choice, you know, and you waited to start, you know, say your homework this late, and now what happens is you have a shorter time between starting and the time you have to go to bed, and so now you're feeling more pressure to get it done. You know, what can you learn from that? Can you learn from that that maybe you need to start a little earlier next time so that you don't feel that kind of pressure. Well, but on the other side of that, what I was talking about is that, that we need to be pointing out, you know what, you could have started later, but you chose to start early, and you finished up your thing early, and look at that, we can go to a movie now. Absolutely, there you go. I mean, that's right, because not all consequences are negative. That's 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 a really important point. So what about when you get to the, the real time when adolescence starts chronologically, when we think it's starting at age 13 or so, like, it, it, it seems like there's still, a lot of them are still very young and, and naive, and they don't seem like teenagers yet. Uh, well, that the second stage, 13 to 15, would be, yeah, that when they're forming a family of friends, and the reason that's important is that most kids, I think, know that adolescence is no time to go it alone. They're feeling you know, they're feeling awkward in terms of their place in the family, and they need a place where they can feel comfortably in the company of other people who are changing the way they are. But the problem is that, you know, these kids have just given up a lot of childhood dependencies and securities, so they're insecure that way. And this is the age, 13 to 15, where most kids, I think, start undergoing puberty, so now they're very, very self-conscious. They feel out of control of their bodies, and they know that there are all kinds of social consequences, you know, for acting funny and talking funny and looking funny, and they're not fun to receive. And so you get more, you know, you get more teasing and that kind of thing going on. Uh, and so that, and and then you then the kid also realizes that, you know, these this the circle of friends is you know it's not a free society. You have to conform to belong. And so you know if you want to be part of this group, you have to be like us and behave like us and believe like us and act like us and, yeah. you know, don't do bad. I mean, there's all kinds of pressure. So that's why, you know, this kid at this age comes back, they've been out with their friends and they come back and all they want to do is to shut the door in their bedroom and lay down and decompress because 
these are relations, early relationships uh, are very, very complicated and very wearing for kids. You know, the, the human memory constantly amazes me. I mean, I, always, I, think, yeah. about it, I think about it in terms of, of women that if they could remember what it was like to give birth, that they probably would never do it again. And right. I, it's it's Next a similar easier, right. No, I mean it's a similar kind of a thing. As I'm listening to you describe this, and I, I've I've got, I have two kids who are in their 20s, and I've got a a 15 year old now, and right. I don't remember quite how bad it was and how how challenging it was to be a teenager. Well, I think it varies widely. I'm more like you. I think I don't have a lot of experiential memory of it, but I do see parents some parents who have really good recall and it's a huge advantage when when you have that because you can in fact share out of that experience and you can say well you know what i can remember back when i was your age and all of a sudden i'd wake up in the morning and the one thing i dreaded in middle school was having to look at the picture of myself in the mirror because i was afraid of that i would have changed some way overnight and you know and i wouldn't want to take go to school looking the way i did um uh, and the kid hears that, and it, the kid says, well, gee, then, you know, I'm not the only one, you know, that this, even though it doesn't make it more comfortable, at least it means, you know, that I'm not, you know, weird or out of step. It just means that this is a complicated time, and it was for my parents, too. All right, so let's, let's move on to the, the next stage, the late adolescence, as you're calling, 15 to 18. Yeah, uh, roughly the high sure. school years, yeah, yeah that's, when, that's when you get kids more interested in acting older, and that's where you got the... You've got to have, you really have to have the communication with parents, helping kids take a look at the risk-taking that now, you know, starts, starts developing in terms of doing older things, driving a car, dating, recreational substance use, partying, that kind of stuff. And uh, parents just, you know, they need to be able to help the kid slow down enough to be able to evaluate the decisions they're making when a new, yeah. a new op- opportunity for an adventure arises. And so the parent says, look, for heaven's sakes, just ask yourself, you know, why would I want to do that? Are there risks involved? Are the risks worth the reward? And if things went badly, what's my backup plan? And, yeah. you know, kind of school the kid in, you know, responsible risk-taking, which is thinking before you take the risk. Right. There's also something that, that that's going on here, too, at this particular stage, especially, it seems that you got to spend a lot of time listening and asking questions, because some of the things that kids are dealing with, I mean, you know, the people talk about the drugs and social media, but I'm, I'm listening to my daughter talk, things that I never heard, I'm, I don't imagine that you ever heard in, in high school either, things, you know, kids who are coming out as trans or gender fluid or non non-binary and things like that. I mean just it's bad enough to be thinking about dating, but it just there there's so much more or just beyond the vocabulary of most adults. Yeah, and I think it goes back to what you said before, which I think is really true. I think kids have to process much more information, say, than you and I did coming up. Uh, and that not only accelerates growth, it, it complicates it, and it, it also complicates you and I as parents listening to this because sometimes we can get scared and we don't want to hear it. Uh, but in fact, 
being able to listen provides that kind of support where, you know, the kid can try to, by talking it out, they can sort it out. And we want them to be able to sort it out. And that's part of our job to help them do so. Yeah, and I think it's it, it's so important still to help us, I mean, for us to help them to just to listen and right. not to preach too much. I mean, there's a, there, there's plenty of teaching that goes on, but it doesn't have to be beating it into their heads. There, there are other ways to get messages across. One of the major ways is, in fact, non-evaluative, open, you know, uh, <clears throat> listening to our empathetic, listening to our kid as they talk about whatever they want to talk about. And most important is whenever this kid wants to talk, you stop doing whatever you're doing because this kid's readiness to talk, it depends on their emotions at the moment. And if you say we'll yeah. talk later, later will not happen. Yep. Carl Pickhart is the author of Who Stole My Childhood? Parenting Through the Four Stages of Adolescence. Carl, always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Hey, good talking to you, Armin. Take care, man. Take care. Bye-bye. To protect her home and family in a disaster, Karen was willing to wade through water, mud, and insurance paperwork. Yeah, I can do this. You go, Karen. By simply understanding and updating what her insurance covers and doesn't cover now, she'll be better prepared no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. 911, what is your emergency? My kid shot himself. All right, where's the wounds? 911, what's your emergency? Please help. My son shot his brother. 911, what is your emergency? 911, please state your emergency. Every day, eight kids and teens are unintentionally killed or injured by loaded and unlocked guns. It wasn't locked. It wasn't locked. It wasn't locked. Learn how to make your home safer at endfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and End Family Fire. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, I'm a new dad, and I've been reading to my baby, but I've started to notice that most of the parents in children's books are moms. There are some books where dad is the main parent, but most of the time, we're not there at all. My wife says that the media is just reflecting reality. I disagree. What do you think? First things first, it's fantastic that you're reading to your baby. It's great for both of you. Now, to your question. I'll admit that I'm a little biased in this area, since the portrayal of fathers in children's literature was the topic of an essay, which appeared in Newsweek more than 20 years ago, and helped launch my career writing about fatherhood. In that essay, which I called Not All Men Are Sly Foxes, I made the same point that you are, that fathers are largely absent in children's literature, and that when they're there, they're more often than not on the periphery or are portrayed as less competent than mom. While there has been some improvement, it hasn't been nearly enough. One could argue, as your wife does, that the images of men and women in children's literature are simply reflecting the reality that women tend to do more child care than men. But if children's literature only reflected reality, why aren't 50% of the families divorced? Why aren't 15-20% to 20 of the single parents in these books fathers? Why, for that matter, aren't teen mothers or smokers or alcoholics and drug abusers adequately represented? The answer is that literature doesn't always reflect reality. In fact, I think that it does quite the opposite, reflecting a kind of reality that doesn't exist, the world the way we'd like it to be, rather than the way that it actually is. 
Books by Richard Scarry and many other authors routinely show both male and female police officers and firefighters. Does that reflect reality? Hardly. According to the U.S. Department of Labor, about 4% of firefighters and 14% of police officers are female. But that hasn't prevented us from all but banishing the words firemen and policemen from the English language. Far more than 4% of all the nurturing parents are men, and there are a lot more actively involved, nurturing, loving dads out there than there are female police officers. Still, images of nurturing fathers are rare. There's little question that reading about female firefighters and police officers, as well as construction workers, farmers, military service members, and other professions where women are a small minority, boosts girls' self-esteem and reinforces in their minds, and everyone else's for that matter, the idea that women have lives beyond the home and that there's nothing that girls and women can't do. Little boys, on the other hand, are given far more restricted lists of life's options. They can do anything they want as long as they financially support their families and leave the nurturing to the nearest female. Thanks to the majority of children's books, our kids, both boys and girls, grow up seeing motherhood as something valuable and noble, and seeing mothers as people to love and respect, and, in the cases of girls, to become. Those same books show fatherhood as being much less important, and fathers as less capable and less worthy of love and respect, and, in the case of boys, not anything to aspire to be. So the bottom line is that you're right, but you can change things for the better. If you look hard, you'll find more books with positive portrayals of dads. In the meantime, make up some stories of your own. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.